Welcome to the Living the Dream Podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Hello and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Curveball. I am your host, Curveball, and today I am joined by a very special guest. He is a motivational speaker, a New York Times bestselling author, as well as a 9-11 survivor, and we're going to get into that, Michael Hinkson. Michael, thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks for having us. Absolutely. So do we call you Curve or Ball or Mr. Ball or what? You can call me whatever you want. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's uh, get into your background, kind of tell people about, you know, maybe where you're from or anything that you want the audience to know about yourself. I know you've achieved a lot of awards during your career. Oh, goodness. Um, Well, I've been blind my entire life. I was born in Chicago. We moved to California when I was five. So I've lived out here most all of my life um, in one way or another. I went to public school and then went to the University of California at Irvine, which is in Orange County, California, where I got a master's degree in physics and a teaching credential. I worked at the campus radio station and had a lot of fun doing those kinds of things. Um, And then I was hired actually by the National Federation of the Blind because I was doing a lot in the science world and the Federation had been approached by Ray Kurzweil, the inventor of originally a device called the Kurzweil reading machine, which was the first technology that would read any type style or set of type styles on a page or and printed material. It didn't care what, it was totally what's called Omnifont. And, um, and he was looking for a way to get funding to help with the development of the machine. And his dream was to use it first to make it possible for blind people to read. So he couldn't get funding, went to the Federation, the National Federation of the Blind, and Ray went to various foundations and eventually got funding to start a project where the Federation literally took machines out of his laboratory, prototype machines, and placed them around the country for blind people to use with the idea that Um, we would all be able to give feedback as to what needed to go into a production model of the machine. So I was hired literally for 18 months to live out of suitcases in hotels and travel around the country, setting up machines, sometimes fixing machines, writing training curriculum, teaching people to use the machines that would help us at the various sites and observing people and eventually writing a report with the recommendations as to what needed to go into the production machine. And I guess you could say the rest is history because the machine was produced in 1979 and started becoming available. And today, of course, as many people may know, it's an app on smartphones. Ray went on to do other things after selling the company to Xerox. But after the Federation project was over, I went to work for Ray and did that for six years. And along the way, about eight months into my job, which was doing the same sort of human factors studies that I was doing prior to being hired by Ray, I was called into the office of the VP of marketing and he said, well, we got some bad news for you. We're laying you off because we've hired too many people who 
aren't revenue producers and we can't support all that. And you're one of those, even though we're not at all unhappy with the work you're doing, we just can't afford it. So we're going to lay you off. And then there was this kind of pause. And he said, unless you want to go into sales. So I'm a science guy, right? I've got a master's degree in physics and all that and liked science and liked what I was doing. But I had moved to Boston and didn't want to go off and start to try to find a new job because I knew about the statistics and the realities of life, which were then the unemployment rate among employable blind people was over 70%. And today it still isn't a lot lower. It's roughly about 65%. But I decided I would, as I love to tell people, lower my standards and go into sales. Um, and, it, and it really isn't lowering standards, but I did that. I went into sales and was successful with Ray until Xerox bought the company and got rid of all of the salespeople who were pre-Xerox takeover people, and that included me. So I started looking for a job. Um, and by that time, I had moved for Kurzweil back to California because I was put in charge of helping to integrate Kurzweil into the Xerox world, which didn't matter when it came time to lay off people. I was let go anyway, like all the other salespeople. I eventually had to start my own company, which was something that we did. Um, selling very graphic intensive products, computer-aided design systems to architects and so on. Because I realized I didn't need to work the product. What I needed to know was how to work the product. And I also hired other people to <clears throat> help sell it and who could see to work it. But I could sit by an architect in front of the machine and guide them through a process as well of how to design things. I did that for a while and then went back into the workforce and went to work for a company that eventually asked me to move back to New York. So we keep flip-flopping from one side of the country to the other. So in 1996, I did that. And that eventually led to me um, opening an office for a company that hired me to uh, open an office for them in New York City. It was a manufacturer whose products I was selling as a reseller for another company. So in 1999, I was hired by Quantum to open an office in New York. And we did that. Um, and looking for office space, we chose to do it in the World Trade Center, which was as great a place as one could possibly get for opening something that was selling products to the financial and um, professional community. So we opened the office in August of 2000 for a while until we got everything set up. We were in a, room, a little office elsewhere, but we opened the office in August of 2000 and that got us up onto the 78th floor of Tower One of the World Trade Center. And um, so we, we got everything set up, hired staff. I was the Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager, so I was responsible for the office. And we, um, we, we got everything running, which was, was really pretty exciting. What a great place to be on the 78th floor. So now before that, we get into that, before we get into the World Trade Center deal, I just wanted to ask you real quick and sorry to interrupt no, no, you, no, but please. I just want to, what, what is your, what was your life like as a blind person growing up? I know you're very successful now, but what was it like growing up, going through school, going through college? I know the accessibility wasn't what it was now, but what was it like? How did people treat you? And how did you get all the stuff accomplished that you needed to as a blind person? I think if I were to really describe what my life was like in grammar school and in high school, it was probably tolerated. Um, I didn't face a lot of hostility. Um, I kind of was, was there. 
Um, I understand that, that well, I joined a couple of clubs like the Science Club. I was very active in science um, and um, I was a um, ham radio operator as well. My dad was an electronics engineer and supervisor of a, a laboratory at Edwards Air Force Base. Um, and so I was pretty proficient in the science and math world. And in fact, as a freshman, the last quarter of my freshman year, my general science teacher said, you know, you're pretty bored with all this, aren't you? And, and I said, yeah, I it's really nothing new because we were going into electricity and magnetism. And here I am with a ham radio license and other things. And they did something that was pretty unique. He and the physics teacher who taught senior physics decided that they would put me in for the last quarter, a senior physics class. So I was in that class because they were also studying electricity and magnetism and such things, except at a whole different level. So it's pretty fascinating. Um, and I enjoyed it and got an A. Um, but I think from a standpoint of the way students perceive me, um, not a lot different. I wasn't necessarily as socially involved as other people and wasn't generally invited to a lot of social kinds of things, I guess. But I was happy reading and, and doing other things around home and, and enjoying school. So it worked out pretty well. Teachers generally were very supportive. I usually stayed an extra hour, an extra period after my um, classes. We had eight periods a day and you either went one through seven or two through eight. So I was in the one through seven group, but I stayed the eighth period to do things like when necessary, take tests where teachers would, would give me tests and so on. So we had reserved for me, one of the back rooms in the school library, the Palmdale High School Library. And I would go in and would work with people to read material to me or when it was time to take a test, the teachers would come in and they would give me the, the tests and so on. And we did them orally. <clears throat> so all that, that worked pretty well. So, I, But I think from a standpoint of the students, I was an oddity, but not really grossly treated in an, an incredibly negative way. But I think that the lesson to me was that's mostly what happens to blind people unless you really push. That is to say, you're tolerated. We already know that blind people can't do very much. And boy, you're amazing if you can get around the school or you're amazing if you're getting A's and all that. But you know, blind people really can't do a lot. So we're tolerated. Um, now, we're demanding more of our rights than we ever have. And there's been pushback that we see on a regular basis for that. And other kinds of things are happening, but mostly it, it worked out pretty well. And I had a relatively peaceful time. When I got to Irvine, UC Irvine, it was a little bit different. Um, my first year I was in a dorm where all of the sports jocks were, which uh, was, was kind of fun. Um, I think at first they didn't know how to deal with me, but they occasionally would play practical jokes on me. The only problem with that was um, I had enough friends that we could return the favors. And a couple of times we got them pretty good. So I actually gained respect. And also I began working at the campus radio station. So I was a, a pretty well-known person on campus and was, uh, was able to, to function and do pretty well. So let's talk about guide dogs real quick. When did you get your first guide dog and how did you get the guide dog that made you that that made you so famous on uh, well, 9 11? Well, so um, when I was nine, we met a woman um, 
who was a teacher at Edwards Air Force Base who was blind, who had a guide dog, and she and her partner were, well, especially she was publicized in the local newspapers, and uh, so my dad called her, and we invited her over, and I got to meet her, and um, also met her guide dog and her her, her friend, and um, it was really the first after kindergarten blind person that I got to really know and the first role model in a sense that here she was a successful teacher, which got me really interested in teaching also. <clears throat> so I learned a lot from Sharon. And um, then when I, I was going into high school, and by the way, I didn't have any formal travel training in elementary school. We didn't have any teachers that knew any of that. When I went into the fourth grade, we did, um, well, the school hired, actually the district hired a resource teacher, someone who would be able to teach Braille and help blind kids and so on. And I, and I worked with her an hour a day working on Braille, working on other things. She would get put into Braille things that I needed. She made sure that we got textbooks in Braille and so on. Um, nothing to do with travel or anything like that. And maybe part of the reason for that was I learned my schools. So I could walk around the school even without a cane because I could hear uh, where buildings were and so on. And I learned the area so well that I didn't have any problem traveling around. Probably part of the time um, I might be walking towards kids and they would scatter out of the way to let me through. I don't recall any specific instances of that. But when we we're going into high school, um, we decided that I really needed <clears throat> something a little better to help. And since we had known about guide dogs, we applied or my parents applied to guide dogs for the blind. And sure enough, I was accepted, uh, even though the normal age at that time was 16, I was 14. I was accepted because I think I was able to travel well. And it was very obvious to anyone who observed me that I knew my area. I knew the school. I could ride around on a bike. I rode to school in younger grades, once I got a bike, um, when we applied for a guide dog, I was going to a school called Sage School, which was across town and I took a bus to it, but still I could travel around the school and, and was very successful. So I was accepted and that probably is part of what helped me be uh, reasonably accepted in high school. Nobody else had a dog on campus, right? I had this great 64 pound golden retriever named Squire, who was a, a great friend. And um, and so now in a much larger school and a much more crowded school, I was still able to navigate around the school very successfully. And of course, everybody loved the dog. And, and there were times that I would let people visit with the dog. But even back then, I realized you can't just let people pet the dog all the time. And, and again, people were pretty accepting of that. So the bottom line is that I was able to successfully work it and so on. And then used Squire up through four years of college. And by the time I graduated with a bachelor's degree, he was getting old enough that um, he wasn't moving as fast, but he was well loved around UC Irvine as well. So he got a diploma when I got a diploma. He was given by the chancellor in front of everyone a degree in lethargic guidance, which we still have. Um, and so the diploma is, is still here. And um, and again, as I say, he was well accepted. And then I got my second guide dog, Holland, who I used in graduate school and then initially with the Kurzweil project. Actually, Holland worked for quite a long time. He worked for 13 and a half years until 1986. So Holland also went down the aisle with, with me to marry my wife, Karen, 
who also has a, a disability. She's in a wheelchair. So it was a great marriage. She reads, I push, as I love to tell people. But we, we worked together and uh, Holland was part of our lives. And then we got uh, my next guide dog, Klondike, who worked for 10 years. And then Linny, my fourth guide dog, who worked three years and then became ill and had to retire as a guide dog. So in 1999, I went to get my fifth dog, and that was Roselle, who, who was with me on September 11th. Well, let's talk about you and Roselle on September 11th. But before we do, I would like to play this CNN clip back from 9-11 when the news first broke. This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. The CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story, obviously calling our sources and trying to figure out exactly what happened, but clearly something relatively devastating happening this morning there on the south end of the island of Manhattan. That is, once again, a picture of one of the towers of the World Trade Center. So let's talk about it. You're on the 78th floor, and I know you, you were talking about the project that you were working on. Kind of talk about that and lead into the run-up of 9-11 when things happened. So as I mentioned, uh, I was hired by a company, Quantum Corporation, to open an office for them. Um, I had been working for a company just before that that did some product manufacturing, but also resold other companies' products. And one of the products that they sold was from a company called Quantum or ATL, actually, initially. Then ATL was purchased by Quantum. <clears throat> and I was selling their products and being very successful. And one day, the sales manager of Quantum in the East called and said, you know, we really like what you're doing. Would you, because you've done it before, open an office for us? And um, I thought about that for a little bit of time, maybe a second. Actually, I did talk to my wife about it first and then agreed that I thought it would be kind of fun to go to work for a manufacturer again, a full-time manufacturer. <clears throat> and I was being asked to open an office for Quantum in New York City. Reason being, was that Wall Street firms that put a lot of demands on manufacturers they worked with wanted an actual quantum physical representation in New York City. Quantum sold its products primarily through distribution and reseller channels, so it didn't sell direct much. Um, but the office would sell direct, but also our job was to support the reseller and distribution channels. And they asked me if I would do that because I'd clearly had experience with both. So I was hired to do that and I was hired to go find an office. Um, initially, we did it just in a little one room suite because I didn't have a staff yet. And one of the things I would be tasked with doing was hiring a staff. <clears throat> so I began by looking for people and hiring salespeople. I had been, by the time we opened that office, in sales now 20 years from 1979 now to quantum in 1999. I had taken Dale Carnegie sales courses and learned a lot about selling. I've managed com uh, companies or parts of companies and of course owned my own for four years as we mentioned before. So I knew <clears throat> a lot about hiring salespeople and knew what I wanted. 
and we hired a staff. And then we um, started to look for an office because it wasn't enough to just have salespeople selling um, and maybe working out of home and so on. We needed to have more of a presence in the city, namely an office with a full demonstration laboratory and facilities and so on, engineering facilities, support offices and so on. So I was supposed to, as part of the initial plan, find such a space and I went to look at various options. And I thought about where could we do this? Um, and there were, I mean, well, it was gonna be in New York City and we could do it uptown or midtown rather and downtown in the financial area. So I started talking with various building operators. And although I thought for sure we didn't stand a chance of getting anything that Quantum would wanna do in the World Trade Center, I contacted the Port Authority leasing company that leased for the center and began discussing with them what we wanted to do and started asking about lease rates and so on. And the sales guy who I talked with said, well, you know, you're really calling us and coming over and discussing this with us at a good time because you know that there was a bombing at the World Trade Center in 1993 in the parking lot. And we're still only at about 80% occupancy. We're just not getting people into the building. <clears throat> so uh, we, uh, we can probably give you a really good price. And Sarah, I'm sitting here, I'm a sales guy. I'm going, you just really opened the door. Um, and I said, well, what are you looking at? And he gave me some numbers and I came back with some numbers and said, look, you're not getting spaced. We're a pretty visible thing. Wall Street loves our products. Let's really talk some more. We finally negotiated 1,400 square feet of office space at $2 a square foot in the World Trade Center on the 78th floor, which is what's called a sky lobby floor. That means elevators go directly to that floor. It's one of two such facilities in the complex at the time. And then people would jump off from there to go to other floors. But our office was right on the sky lobby floor. So we got 1,400 square feet of office space for 2,800 bucks a month, which is cool. And um, we took it and went forward from there and opened the office. We got the staff all situated. We hired engineer support people. We hired um, maintenance people and so on. And, and then demonstration equipment started being sent back to us. So we set up a full real live, as good as it gets, facility for sales and service in the World Trade Center. And um, when Roselle came on board and, and then we got the office open, it wasn't long before Roselle decided that her job was to just not do a whole lot when we were in the office. But if the door to the front or the outside door opened, she was up like a shot and went out to greet whoever came in, whether it was people who normally worked in the office or um, guests who were coming in for whatever reason. So she became the official greeter in the office, which was kind of fun. Everybody loved it. So we were a, a well-known entity around the World Trade Center and um, we, we had everything set up that we needed. One of the things that I did was to make sure I knew everything there was to know about the complex that I could learn. That is, 
I knew that as the manager of that office, I needed to know what to do in an emergency. I needed to know how to get around and move from place to place in the complex. I needed to be able to know where uh, various companies and offices were, where the restaurants were and so on. Because for example, there would be times that guests would be in the office and we would wanna take them out to lunch. I couldn't just say when we decided we're going out to lunch, I can't find anything because I'm a blind guy, you know, someone's going to have to lead me. I needed to be able to say, where do you want to go? Oh, you want a deli sandwich? There's this great restaurant downstairs called Fine and Shapiro. And we can go there if you'd like, get good deli sandwiches <clears throat> or a number of other restaurants in the complex. But my job then would be to lead people there. And I did that because I needed to demonstrate that I was as capable and as competent, if not more so than anyone else, because how would it look if we came back upstairs a couple of hours later and we were going to be negotiating multi-million dollar contracts? That happened more than once. I wanted to always deal with life from a position of strength, which meant knowing everything that I could possibly know and learning more as we went along. But the bottom line is that I learned what I needed. I learn how to travel around the World Trade Center. I learned what to do in an emergency. And as I now realize it, I was developing a mindset that even in the case of an emergency, I knew what to do and what was going on. And I could in turn um, just deal with it and I could find my way out. I could do whatever needed to be done and I wouldn't be afraid. And it had nothing to do with being blind. It had to do with developing a mindset that taught me to control any fears and any concerns. Um, you know, unexpected things could happen, but I learned as uh, a blind person that you're gonna hit surprises all the time. You can walk out in the middle of a street and suddenly a car is coming at you because you didn't hear the hybrid car or somebody isn't following the traffic lights and you gotta learn to expect surprises. So I did. And the bottom line of all that is that that again helped me create a mindset that said you can do whatever you need to do in whatever situation comes along. And then of course September 11 hit which brought all that to to life and to light. Well, let's talk about that fateful morning. Talk about getting to the office. What did you do before it happened and and go into what actually happened. In August of 2001, I had been meeting with some of our reseller partners and they wanted to get their people trained. Actually, we were talking to a distributor. The way our process worked is a lot of our products for small resellers were not sold directly to them, but sold to what are called distributors who bought our products and then they got the small reseller accounts, the one, two, three, and maybe five or 10 person shops. So they would sign with the distributors who signed with us. So we didn't have to have hundreds of accounts and hundreds of credit lines and so on set up. We just worked with the distributor and then they did all the, the, the heavy work. So the bottom line is that we got all that set up. Um, and so we were going to be working with this distributor to do some training because they wanted to train their reseller partners how to sell our products. And we decided to do it on September 11th. So that morning, I was going to go into the office early. Um, and in fact, 
got up about an hour earlier than I normally would and uh, arranged to uh, get to the train station and then from there to get into the city. But I got to the train station in time to catch the 618 train that would have got me into the World Trade Center with a train change about seven. But wouldn't you know what, the train broke. So uh, I ended up getting the, the train that would normally take me in. And so I stood around the train station for about 40, 45 minutes. But anyway, we got into the complex about 740 and I went to my office. And by that time, there was a gentleman waiting with a cart who had just arrived also. He had food. We had ordered breakfast for early arrivals at the complex. So I went in and showed him where to set up, which he did. He was from the Port Authority cafeteria on the 44th floor. At eight o'clock, a gentleman named David Frank arrived. David was my colleague from our corporate office. He had responsibility for distribution, sales and pricing. And so he would talk during our seminars about pricing and so on. My job was to do all the technical training, to teach people how to do it, to show them um, some slides and show them our programs and so on. And that was easy to do because my computer talked using what's called a screen reader in a program called JAWS, um, which you're familiar with. And uh, I um, had the projector all set up because we were going to be showing about a 46 slide presentation. The only thing that I am not overly good at is making sure that we aim it right to the middle of the screen. So when David arrived, we set that up. Uh, some guests arrived with David from our distributor, Ingram Micro. So they ate, ate breakfast while David and I went into my office and finished some final preparations for the seminars. And we were in my office at 8.45 that morning. Um, the last thing we had to do was to create a final list of all the people who would be coming to the seminars. And the reason for that is it, with security being what it was in the complex, you had two ways to get in to any office. One, you can go to the desk and say, I want to go up and see so-and-so, or I've got a meeting there. And they would call up to the office and get authorization. Or if you were doing a seminar or if you were doing some sort of meeting where you had a number of people or even just a few, you could create a list on stationary of the people who were coming and you could fax that list on letterhead to the security people. And they in turn then would have that. And when people came and proved who they were by showing ID, then your picture would be taken. It would be laminated onto a badge with a barcode that allow you to get into the elevators to go up to the appropriate floors and then away you'd go. So David and I were creating the list. I was reaching for stationery to print the list when we heard a muffled explosion. The building kind of shuddered and shivered a little bit, and then it started to tip in one direction. And the best way I can describe this so you can get a feel for what it was like was imagine taking a spring and fashioning it to a table and then push the top of the spring the leaves of the spring would expand, and the more you pushed on the spring, the harder it would be for it to go. And that's exactly what happened. The airplane hit the building. Tall buildings like that are flexible. They actually have expansion joints that allow them to sway and be buffeted in windstorms and so on, um, because you get a lot of wind and so on in, in uh, 
the city and in, in, in any tall building. And what you wanted to do was to make sure that the building wasn't going to break. So you had to have flexibility into it. So when the aircraft hit the building, the building swayed. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It kept springing in one direction because the impact of the aircraft and the speed and the energy being transferred to the building, there's a physics thing for you, um, pushed the building over. We literally moved about 20 feet. And during that time, um, David and I were trying to figure out what was going on because the aircraft hit on the 78, well, on the, I'm sorry, 96th floor on the other side of the building from us. So about 18 floors above us. So the building was moving. We couldn't figure out what it was. We didn't think it was an explosion. We didn't know. We didn't think that David thought it might be an earthquake. And I said, no, that's not how earthquakes behave. Um, so I was standing and, and moved over to the doorway between my office and the reception area. Not that it would really make a difference standing in a doorway when you're 78 floors above if the building were to collapse. But that's what I was trained to do. Earthquake or building moves, go to doorway. Um, Roselle was asleep under my desk. <clears throat> David was just holding on to my desk. And I remember we finally said goodbye to each other because we thought we had moved so far that we were going to take a 78 floor plunge to the street. The building slowed down and it stopped and then it started moving back the other way. And I remember letting out my breath when the building started to go back the other way. And finally, the building became vertical again. And as soon as it did, I went into my office and I met Roselle coming out from under my desk. I took her leash and I said to heal, which meant to come around and get on my left side, which she did. She sat down and about that time, the building dropped straight down about six feet. Now today, we know that that is because the spring, if you will, the leaves in the spring went back to their normal configuration. So the building did everything it was supposed to do at the time. The building was not destroyed by the direct result of the aircraft crashing into the building. What destroyed the building was the 26,000 pounds of jet fuel, basically, that exploded and further damaged the infrastructure and eventually caused enough fire and enough further damage over an hour and 45 minutes that the building eventually collapsed. So the building dropped six feet. David turned and looked out the window and started yelling, oh my God, Mike, there's fire and smoke above us. We got to get out of here right now. We can't stay here. There's fire and smoke. We can't stay. And I said, slow down, David, we'll get out. And he said, no, we got to get out of here right now. We can't stay here. And I said, just slow down. Um, and, and he said, we got to get out of here right now. Our guests began to scream. They started moving toward our exit. And um, then they heard me tell David, slow down, and they, they slowed down, and they were just watching to see what was going to happen. And David kept saying, we got to get out of here right now. We can't stay here. <clears throat> and then finally used what I always call the big line. He said, you don't understand. You can't see it. Well, I could hear debris falling outside the building. And when he told me there were millions of pieces of burning paper falling outside the building and that he saw fire and smoke above us, I believed all that. The problem wasn't what I wasn't seeing, it was what David wasn't seeing. Specifically, Roselle was sitting next to me on my left side, yawning and wagging her tail and giving no indication whatsoever that she was nervous. Now, 
I had read stories about dogs that have saved humans because they detected smoke or fire or something before the humans did, and they helped to get their people out. And I, and other people have read those stories, and it's a common thing to, to see from time to time. And Roselle also was afraid of thunder. And of course, it wasn't a thunder noise that we heard that day, but even so, nothing was bothering Roselle, which told me whatever was occurring wasn't such an imminent threat to us that we couldn't try to evacuate in an orderly way. Or maybe another way to put it is that the mindset kicked in. I told you that I learned what to do in an emergency and I learned how to focus and assess. I've done that all my life. And what I realized was that whatever was going on, we at least could try to evacuate in an orderly way. So I finally got David to focus and said, get our guests to the stairs and then let's go down and get out after you get them started. You come back and we'll sweep the office and go out. He, he took our guests to the stairs and started them down. Meanwhile, I called my wife, Karen, and let her know that there had been an explosion or something happened. She, uh, he came back, I hung up with her, we swept the office, and then we went to the stairs and started down. Almost immediately, I began smelling an odor that I realized after a few floors were the fumes from burning jet fuel. It took me a few floors because I couldn't place it. I never thought I would imagine smelling it in the World Trade Center. And I realized eventually that I'm smelling what I smell at airports. It must be burning jet fuel. I observed that to other people and they in turn said, yeah, you're right, that's what we're smelling. We must have been hit by an airplane, but we didn't know. That's what we assumed. We didn't know not because I couldn't see it or whatever. We didn't know because the aircraft hit 18 floors above us on the other side of the building. So many people even today say, well, of course you didn't know because you couldn't see it. And as I kind of try to point out to them, the last time I checked Superman was fictitious and we didn't have x-ray vision. None of us knew what happened. We weren't where anyone could see it. So. Anyway, we continued down the stairs. Along the way, we had some burn victims pass us and there were a couple of times that people started to lose it on the stairs. Um, but eventually we made it down to the first floor. <clears throat> and when we got there, um, David was a floor below me and he, he was a floor below because at one point he was getting pretty concerned and so I got to take my mind off this. So he walked a floor below me and started shouting up to me everything that he saw in the complex. So he saw in the buildings and he saw as we went down the stairs. So like he'd say, Mike, I'm on the 48th floor. Everything is good here. I was a floor above him and you know, um, then he next floor, I'm on 47, all clear going on down. I think that's one of the most incredible things I saw that day, even though David was doing it to keep his mind on something. If you really think about what David did by shouting up to me, hey, Mike, I'm on the 44th floor. This is where the Port Authority cafeteria is. Not stopping, going on down. David was becoming a focal point for anyone within the sound of his voice. He gave everyone above him and below him something on which to focus. 43rd floor, all's good here. And he had to, by definition, keep lots of people focused and calm who might otherwise have panicked. We didn't experience any panic after that as we went down the stairs. People listened to David. 
um, people remained more calm and everyone made it out, which I now think let is me just, important. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question real quick. I know I have been on planes and I've had my cane and the flight attendant would act like it was some security risk if I didn't put it over my head. And I tried to explain to them, well, this is what I need. And they say, oh, no, because in an emergency, you don't need that thing in the way. We just need to get you out. When you were walking down these floors with your dog, was there anybody that tried to say, here, give me the dog, just hold on to me? No. Or did everybody know you so good that they just left you alone because they knew you knew exactly what you were doing? I don't know that they knew that I knew, except it became pretty obvious. As we went down the stairs, I kept praising Roselle. Good girl, keep going. And I want to come back to your airplane thing in a minute. <clears throat> good job, Roselle. Good girl going down the stairs. Let's keep going. Good girl forward. What a good dog. And I did that because I wanted to constantly make sure that she was getting a message that I was okay. Because if she had to sense the fear around her. She had to see what other people were like and doing. But she kept hearing me be very focused and, and sounding confident and so on, which meant to her, I was okay, let's keep going. And she was able to focus as a guide dog going down the stairs and doing her job. The other side of that is because she kept being focused and nothing ever bothered her, she didn't sense anything that would indicate to her that there was a problem that would cause her to panic. I knew that she was okay. So it's a symbiotic relationship. It's the team relationship between two creatures working together to get a job done. Now, let's go back to airplanes. Um, well, actually, let me, before I do that, let me say one other thing. I have had a number of people who've contacted me since September 11th who have said, you know, we came into the stairwell as you were passing and we heard you talking to Roselle and you were sounding so confident. You clearly weren't worried about anything. You just kept going. We followed you down the stairs because clearly you were okay. And I think that's what, what people sensed and experienced. It wasn't that they knew anything in advance, but they could see and hear that I clearly thought I knew what I was doing. And it was more than I thought and I was, knew what I was doing. Clearly I did because I was able to go without any hesitation and be confident as we went down the stairs. There were a couple of times that, that I even made some comments like once when we started to just, I heard everybody just getting real quiet and maybe they were getting worried. I decided I can't let these people be so quiet and get nervous. So I do things like, hey, you know, everybody, we're not going to be allowed. We're not going to be allowed back into this building for a while. So when they let us come back in, because you know there's fire, obviously. When they let us back in, let's all meet on the 78th floor at 8:45 in the morning and walk down the stairs together. What a great way to lose weight, huh? You know, and things like that. Or I said once. Now I want you to know that, uh, and, and there were a lot of people, of course, who didn't see me. They were above or below me. <clears throat> I said as loud as I could. Now my name is Mike Kingston. I am blind. I've got my guide dog Roselle. Don't worry if the lights go out because Roselle and I are offering a half price special to get you out today only. And I did that kind of stuff because I wanted to make people laugh. I wanted people to lighten up, but I also wanted them to know that there was someone who didn't care if we lost power or whatever, and that I would help them get out. Let's go back to your airplane thing. I've had the same thing happen, both if I'm using a dog or a cane. When Linny became ill, I went six months without a guide dog and was very comfortable traveling around New York City with a cane, traveling on aircraft with a cane and not a guide dog. 
um, and had the same thing happen to me. And I've had flight attendants come up to me with Roselle or any of my guide dogs and say, now we don't want you to worry if there's an emergency, um, we'll get the passengers out and then we'll come back and get you. And I would immediately reach out my hand and say, no, let's uh, go back a little bit. If I'm not a passenger like everyone else saying, please give me a refund, because if you're not gonna treat me like a passenger, I'll just ride for free, but I want my money back. And, and they'd stammer and cetera. I'd say, let me explain this to you. I'm a passenger like anyone else on this aircraft. I, on the other hand, like unlike a lot of people, really take seriously your pre-flight briefings and all the other things that you do. There's one piece of information I want from you. What are the row numbers of the overwing emergency exit rows? And they'll say to me, oh, well, I, I, you don't need that because we'll come and get you. And I said, no, you won't. What are the row numbers of the overwing exit rows? You know why they usually resist telling me? Probably they, because they don't want you moving around. They don't think no, you can do it. No, they don't know the row numbers of the emergency overwing exits for the most part. And when I ask them and I say, why don't you include that as part of your regular briefing? They say, oh, well, they change all the time. No, they don't. The bottom line is that every airline should, as part of their pre-flight briefings, tell people not only that there are emergency row exits over the wings, not only you can follow the floor lighting system, but you know, in case there's smoke where you can't see the lighting system, here are the row numbers. They don't do that. They should do that. They should make sure everyone has that information um, or as much as they can. My favorite announcement was from somebody at Southwest uh, when I was on a flight who said, now I want you to know that there are 50 ways to leave your lover, but there are only six ways to leave this aircraft. And if you want to know what they are, listen to what I have to tell you. That's how we started his briefing. He got people's attention with that. And by the way, he did say the row numbers, but mostly they're lazy and they don't either know the row numbers or they just don't think of putting them in the briefings. And all too often they don't know and they have to go back because I push hard and they get the row numbers and they bring them back. And then they say exactly what you said, but you know, you don't have to worry about that because we'll come and get you. I said, no, you don't understand. I'm gonna be at the bottom of that chute waiting for you to come down and I'll catch you. I'm not gonna wait for you. Why would I do that? Why does eyesight have anything to do with it? And what guarantee do you have if there's an emergency floor lighting system, but the cabin is full of smoke that people are going to be able to see it? and that they're going to be able to, to get to the exit rows. You don't know what to do in those kinds of emergencies. You're not trained. I am. So I push back really hard. Um, and I deliberately do that because it's my survival. I mean, I'm worried about everybody surviving, but it's my survival I'm mostly worried about. And I need that information. And I don't care if I'm using a cane or a dog. And, and, and if I'm using a cane, I am not going to put it up above. That cane is going to go on the floor where I can get to it when I need it. Um, and the reality is that there were battles in the past. The airlines tried to restrict use of canes uh, and they lost that battle. The fact is that you can take your cane and you can have, as long as you're not blocking the, the row, so you put it flat on the floor, um, under your feet or whatever, and it won't go anywhere. And they don't have any option with that. You have the right to do that. So 
you should push back. You should say, I'm as much a passenger as anyone else. You give me the information that I need and I'll be okay and I'll help you because I get more surprises and more unexpected emergencies and strange situations than you. It happens to me every day, even when I'm crossing a street. So I have those kinds of discussions from time to time. And they get to the point where they recognize that maybe they have something to learn. I don't try to do it in an obnoxious way unless they really force it. But I will insist on knowing the information that I need in order to get out. And all of us should do that. And we should learn the things as blind people that we should know, because we don't get to read signs. And even if you're a partial blind person, learn the information. Don't rely on signs. Don't rely totally on eyesight. Learn the techniques because it will make you a much more functional and efficient and proficient passenger on aircraft. Absolutely. And the sad part about it, mine was a fold-up cane, so it wasn't even the long white cane that a lot of people use. Yeah, I usually use now a telescoping cane um, that I keep in my backpack. And even when I um, had to use a cane full-time, I used the telescoping cane and it works fine. They don't have the right to tell you not to keep it. And a folding cane, of course, you just put the seat back in front of you and it can fit in there. And that's all the body needs to do. Now, let's talk about when you guys got down to the first floor. Um, obviously, you guys didn't know the tower, tower was going to fall. Was there a specific place that you went after you got out of the building? Or did you just kind of say, hey, we need to get out of here? And you just luckily got far enough away from the tower that you weren't killed when it fell? Oh, it wasn't quite that easy. Um, when we got down, um, we went outside. Actually, a guy from the FBI saw David and me when we came out of the stairwell. David came out first, and then they saw me. So this guy comes over and says, let me get you where you need to go. And I asked him, what's going on? He wouldn't tell us. You know, I understand they didn't want to cause panic. And he didn't know me well enough to know information is my friend. And I would rather have known what was going on so that I could make intelligent decisions. Um, but he took us outside. We went uh, through the whole complex and up an escalator and out, which ended up putting us back in the plaza on the second floor. But we got outside. David saw smoke and fire actually from Tower 2. We had no idea about that because of the fact that we were um, in our little cocoon, if you will. We were in the stairwell when Tower 2 uh, was hit, and we had no idea that that happened. So we um, just got outside and David saw the fire. And so we um, were told to leave the area. We looked for a while and then we walked over to Broadway and we just started walking north to get to Midtown. Um, we had no idea that the buildings were going to fall. <clears throat> but what happened was that we got to Vessie Street. Um, we were on the left side of Broadway going north. So we were on the west side of, of Broadway. So there was a building on my left. We crossed several streets, and as I said, got to Vessi. And then David said, I want to stop and get some pictures of the fire in the tower because you know, we're not very far away from it, we're like 100 yards away from it. Remember, it's a 400-yard tall building. So I can see it really clearly. I want to get pictures of the fire. And I still have some of those pictures today. <clears throat> um, 
David got out his camera and started taking pictures and I got out my phone. I tried to call my wife and I couldn't get through. Uh, the, the circuits were all busy. As we now know, of course, people in the towers were saying goodbye to loved ones because the people who were trapped up high knew that they weren't going to get out. I had just put my phone away and David put he, was putting his camera away when a police officer yelled, get out of here, it's coming down now. And Tower 2, which was, as I said, maybe 100 yards or so away, started collapsing. The sound was like a combination of a freight train and a waterfall. As I describe it, the freight train, you could hear metal clattering and glass clinking and breaking, and then this white noise sound of the building collapsing straight down. If it had tipped, it would have been a different story, but the building did exactly what it was supposed to do. It pancaked straight down. But meanwhile, everyone turned and ran. David ran, he was gone. I turned Roselle around and we started running back the other way. We ran to the street that we had just passed, now going south on Broadway, the building was on my right, um, and I got to Fulton Street, turned right on Fulton Street because I wanted a building between us and the tower, as if it really mattered if the building tipped over, but that was my thought process. And we ran about 25 yards, and then we caught up to David. It turns out he had gone the same way. Realized that he had just left me and was going to try to come back and find me, but I found him first, and he apologized, and we kept running. Um, our intent was just to get out of the area. We had no clue what was going on. And as it turns out, we ran more into potential danger than, than away from it, but we did survive. And then later we walked further away and we were about a, maybe a quarter of a mile away when our building collapsed. And um, so we were far enough away that we weren't going to be hit by debris, but we did see a uh, dust cloud coming from the falling Tower 1, and we moved out of the way because it was pretty confined. And then when it was all over and the building collapsed and it got quiet, we stood up and David looked around and said, oh, my God, there's no World Trade Center anymore. And it was only after that that I called my wife and got through, and she's the first one to tell us what really happened. Well what were your feelings like um, finding out <clears throat> this is what really happened? Now I know what's going on. And, and what did you do after that? You know, like, wh where did you go? What was, what was the rest of the day like for you? Kind of in shock. Um, had, had no real clue. It was just, it was too incredible to think about. We worked to get um, back over to Broadway and get up toward Midtown Manhattan um, and we got up to um, an area called Soho, and we got to Canal Street, actually, where we stopped at a little Vietnamese restaurant. And we did that just to have a place to stop and rest for a while. After I talked to my wife, we, um, I guess we got to Canal, and we, or well, we didn't get that far. We sat down somewhere. There was a wall that we were sitting on, and I had a small radio in my backpack, and I heard uh, Mayor Giuliani telling everyone, you know, you need to move away from downtown. There's a potential for gas explosions and other things. And it was the um, the beginning of of him being all over New York. And I and I will say that he was not the most well liked person prior to that. But Rudy Giuliani demonstrated incredible leadership qualities over the next few weeks being everywhere in New York, being the head cheerleader, doing everything that anyone could possibly ask. 
and more to keep people focused, to keep people recovering, to keep people moving forward. He had made a promise the week after September 11th to be at a wedding. He was there and then a half hour later, he was across town doing something else. It was amazing. Um, I, I'm just gonna say, not the same guy we see today. But anyway, um, for us, we, we listened to that and then we just continued to walk further north and we got eventually to this little Vietnamese restaurant where we stopped um, just to have a place to sit. And uh, I ordered a bowl of soup for the two of us to split and uh, David gave him some money so we could just be there. We also knew that he might not get a lot of business, although I don't know how many people came in. We were there about noon when suddenly we heard aircraft overhead and people went outside. <clears throat> and the next thing we heard was, it's our guys, they're up in the air. We're taking control again. And everyone just cheered in the restaurant. Um, then we went and eventually got further up to Midtown, well, to the University District of New York, where David had a friend. We went to her apartment and were there for a while until I learned from my wife that the trains were running again. So we decided that we wanted to to get me to the train station and then David wanted to go back up to where he was staying with his sister who lived on the um, northeast side of um, New York City. So we left David's friend's apartment, Nina's apartment and got eventually over to Penn Station where I caught a train and then David went further up to get to where she was. Um, meanwhile, a, a friend who Karen had known since high school, who also lived in the New Jersey area where we lived a little bit north of us, came down to be with her, not knowing when he first came over, whether I was in the office that day, working that day or whatever happened. Uh, and then obviously learned that I was okay. He drove her to the train station at seven that night to pick Roselle and me up. And we went back home and just started to decompress. Um, and then I think started to really hit, but it was a while before we could really fathom what was going on and really comprehend it. And, and even today, it's just amazing that something like that happened and that people would go to those kinds of results um, and do the things and behave the way they did. And now, of course, we're seeing a lot of other crazy things happen in our country, which makes a body wonder where the sanity of a lot of people are. But we need to recognize that there are basic principles that we should live by. And um, one of the things for me in terms of principles is after September 11th, the media got my story. We were interviewed by Larry King on Larry King Live and then the media really got the story. And I started getting invitations to come and speak and people said, we wanna hire you to come and speak to us and tell us what we should learn from September 11th and we wanna hear your story. And that led to changing to a speaking career from a sales career, which is really another kind of sales. <clears throat> also Guide Dogs for the Blind wanted to hire me to come and be their spokesperson. So we combined the two opportunities to make a full-time speaking career and supporting guide dogs. And I did uh, the guide dog work for six and a half years, um, actually about seven years. And then um, we, um, a new CEO came and they, they ended that job. So I went to speaking full time. Then of course, in 2020, the pandemic hit and we lost speaking requests and speaking opportunities. So 
I started thinking about what I had been doing, and I realized that I've talked for 19 years about what happened. I've talked about the things that I learned and the skills that I developed to keep me focused, but I've never taught people how to do that. And so uh, I am, uh, I'm going to start doing more of that. So I've created a new program called Blinded by Fear. And the way Blinded by Fear is structured is it's a coaching and seminar program <clears throat> where people can sign up. And if they do, they will get immediately a, a short ebook I wrote about fear and talking a little bit about September 11th, but other things as well. And they'll be invited to schedule an introductory call with me where we can talk about their interests. And I made this for people who are fearful, who have had unexpected and serious life changes, who are afraid, who are to the point where they really can't make decisions. They don't know what to do. They're lost, hence blinded by fear. And my intent is to work with those people to teach them how to learn to have more control over their fears. Even on September 11th, while we didn't have control over the buildings being attacked, <clears throat> we all, each of us individually, do and did have control over how we dealt with our abilities to address the issues. There are people today who still won't fly after September 11th because they're afraid they might be in an aircraft that's hijacked. People become afraid for lots of reasons, and they worry about all sorts of things over which they really have no control. Rather than focusing on the things that they can, and rather than focusing on how do we get beyond this and being a little bit more calm and focused about getting beyond whatever bothers them. So Blinded by Fear will be a program to help people do that. And if I have an introductory call, which is free with people, and they want to then have uh, ongoing calls with me where I will help them and coach them to develop their own skills and mindsets about controlling fear, then you know we'll, we'll sign them up and we'll, we'll move forward with that. So the program is just going live. It's at blindedbyfear.net. And, um, and we're excited to start it. There are a couple of little things that are still being worked out in the logistics of the website, but it's, it's coming. So it'll be blindedbyfear.net. And people, if they, if they go to the website, the first thing they could do is for free is to download my, my ebook called Blinded by Fear, and they'll have the opportunity to schedule a call, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So speaking I'm excited books, about that. Absolutely. I said, speaking of books, let's talk about your Thunderdog book. That's the New York Times bestseller. So in 2002, um, Roselle was uh, given an award called the Canine Award for Excellence by the American Kennel Club. <clears throat> and um, it was presented at the Yukonuba Grand National Dog Show Championship in Florida in December of 2002. While we were down there for that, I met George Berger, who was the, was the publisher of the American Kennel Club Gazette. And he said, you ever thought about writing a book about your experiences? And I said, well, hadn't really, but you know, sounds like a good idea. And he said, well, I'd like to help and I can introduce you to a, an agent and 
we started making notes and as I described, we got about a megabyte worth of notes. Um, and he introduced me to an agent who wanted me to write it as a business book. And I said, no, I think it needs to be a more general book for the public. I want people to learn about blindness. I want people to learn about guide dogs. And I want people to learn that when they're in unexpected situations, they can work through it. Well, it kind of <clears throat> just didn't move along very much and sat on the shelf. But in 2010, a woman named Susie Flory called me. She was writing a book called Dog Tales, which was 17 stories of things that dogs had done, and she wanted Roselle's story to be part of it. So I told her the story that I told you, and afterward there was a pause, and she said, you ever thought of writing a book? And I said, well, yeah, and I told her about what George and I had done. And she said, I'd like to help, and I've got a literary agent. He's one of the top agents in the country, and I think that he could help get it published. So she introduced me to her agent, who's my agent now, Chip McGregor. And um, when Chip and I talked, he said, I don't want a 9-11 book. And I said, good, neither do I. And I explained what I wanted to do. And he said, well, then do what authors do, write a proposal. So Susie and I wrote a proposal. And there's a, a process to writing a good book proposal, which we did. We sent it to Chip. And the next thing we hear, Chip's literally bounced off the walls. He says, I love this. I can sell this in no time. Within a week, he had gotten a contract with Thomas Nelson Publishing, which was the largest publisher of Christian books. Because there are some Christian elements to the story, um, but also he thought that they would be a, a good fit for the book. Um, and we began working on it after the contract was signed. So in early 2011, we started working with them to make edits and improvements to the book. The deadline and the uh, commitment was to publish it by August 2nd. Well, in June, they were sending out review copies to people. <clears throat> Amazon picked it up and was pretty interested. Kirkus, which is the publication that publishes information about upcoming books, among other things, for the publishing industry got it. They gave it a very favorable review. And on August 2nd, the book was published. On the 11th of August, I was at home when I got a call from some of the people at Thomas Nelson Publishing. And they said, we, we've got to talk with you about something. We've got to give you some information, but you need to sit down for it. And um, I said, well, Karen's sitting down. Of course, she's in a wheelchair. And they said, yeah, but you got to sit. And they were sounding all glum and all that. And I'm going, this is strange. Anyway, I sat down and I said, okay, I'm sitting down. The next thing we hear is, in its first week out, Thunderdog is on the New York Times bestseller list. And they were bouncing off the walls back there at, in Nashville at Thomas Nelson. It's been a number one New York Times bestselling book. The last time I met with Larry King, I asked him if he would be willing to write the foreword, which he did. He wrote a great foreword for the book. And it has been um, 13 weeks in its career on the New York Times bestseller list. It is still selling um, and um, people can purchase it anywhere you can get books from. Uh, audiobooks are available. It's also available on audible.com. And, and we're excited about it. And then a couple of years later, uh, I wanted to write a, a children's book about it. Susie introduced me to someone who worked with me to write um, a different, slightly different take on it called Running with Roselle, which is more about Roselle and I both growing up and then getting together. 
So Jeanette and I wrote Running with Roselle, which is now available, self-published through Amazon and what is now Kindle Direct Publishing. So people can go to Amazon and get it. Um, it is also available in audio form from Learning Ally, and it's also available on Bookshare. Absolutely. Now, before we go, you talked about things that people should take away and learn from 9-11. Tell listeners what that is. What, what should everybody take away and learn from 9-11? Teamwork is a very powerful thing. Teamwork is something that we should all learn to do. Uh, I don't care what anyone thinks. No one does anything alone. Um, it's the old expression, no, no man or no one is an island. But the, the reality is even Einstein didn't develop the theory of relativity all on his own. He wasn't the greatest mathematician in the world. And even if he was the creator of that and he made the mental leap to develop the, the theory, think of all the teaching that he got ahead of time. Think of all the teachers who taught him and all of the, the various things that he had to learn and did learn. Um, so many of us don't focus on, on the fact that we do more together than we do separately. And so it's kind of really important that, that we recognize the value in teamwork. And um, I think that that is extremely important. So teamwork is, is pretty crucial. Um, we, uh, we need to learn to focus on um, what we can control, which is again, something that I um, discussed a little bit earlier. And don't worry about the things that you can't control. It's not gonna help you to do that. And if you do that, you're gonna drive yourself crazy. So focus on what you can, the rest will take care of itself. The golden rule, you know, do unto others as they would, you would have them do unto you is, is important. Um, <clears throat> learn to recognize that life in itself is an adventure. Don't get negative by it. Even in this pandemic period, even in our crazy tumultuous political world that we live in today, don't let yourself be immersed in fear, um, it, it won't help. Yeah, there are things to be concerned about. Yeah, there are crazy decisions being made that we just can't fathom. But the reality is that there is more to life than the decisions that people make. And even though we're losing a lot of people in this pandemic world, um, and we're going to lose a lot more, and, and there are reasons for that, the fact is all of us can do as much as we can about staying protected. My wife and I stay home. We don't go anywhere. And there is a reason for that. We buy into the concept that there is a virus out there. We've seen too many pieces of evidence that the virus is there. And so we know that we're gonna stay safer if we stay at home. And we do. Um, we don't go to gatherings. As I love to tell uh, people, Instacart and Grubhub are our friends, and, and we succeed and do pretty well. But I think to sum up the lessons to be learned, I want to read something from Thunderdog. It's called Guide Dog Wisdom, Lessons I Learned from Roselle on September 11th. you mind if I read that? Go right ahead. Okay. There are 10 points here. Number one, 
There's a time to work and a time to play. Know the difference. When the harness goes on, it's time to work. Work hard. Others are depending on you. Number two, focus in and use all of your senses. Learn to tell the difference between a harmless thunderstorm and a true emergency. And then my point in this, don't let your sight get in the way of your vision. All too often, people just lock themselves into what they see. We talked about it with the flight attendants and people on airlines. They're missing whole dimensions in their lives. Number three, sometimes the way is hard, but if you work together, someone will pass along a water bottle just when you need it. And there was a time that when we were going down the stairs, people were getting pretty tired. And then from further down the stairs, somebody started passing up bottles of water because they opened a water vending machine and just got bottles of water for people. Number four, Roselle's favorite, always, but always kiss firefighters. There was a time when we were going down the stairs and we started meeting firefighters coming up the stairs. And even though you shouldn't pet a guide dog when they're in harness, the firefighters started petting Roselle. We had stopped and um, we didn't argue with it. So uh, they got some unconditional love and it may have been the last love they got for all we know, but they got to pet her and, and she liked it too. Number five, ignore distractions. There's more to life than playing fetch or chasing tennis balls. Number six, Listen carefully to those who are wiser and more experienced than you. They'll help you find the way. <clears throat> Number seven, don't stop until work is over. Sometimes being a hero is just doing your job. Number eight, the dust cloud won't last forever. Keep going and look for the way out. It will come. Number nine, shake off the dust and move on. Remember the first guide dog command, forward. Number 10, when work is over, play hard with your friends and don't forget to share your favorite Boda Bone. And the story behind that is that after September, well, after we got home on September 11th, uh, I took Roselle's harness off even before she went outside. She went off and found her favorite bone and started playing tug of war with my fourth guide dog, retired Linny. And they played for a while. It was over for her. And uh, so she was ready to go on and, and play. <clears throat> so those, I think, are, are very important lessons. Another one that I would say is extremely important is any good leader recognizes that there are times that other people have skills that should allow them to be able to take a leadership position. Um, there were times that we were, when we were going down the stairs that Roselle could guide and as we were moving around the city that Roselle could guide, there were times that she couldn't, like on the stairs when it got too crowded. Um, there were times that other people offered information and, and made suggestions and did some things with us that, that made it very clear that they were in a better position to help us than, than anything that I could do myself. We need to all learn to work together. If I were to really talk about September 11th in a scary way, and I, and I hate to do it, but it is still something that I think is dramatic and pertinent to say, think about the fact that there was a team of 19 people bent on destruction who brought the world to its knees that day because they worked as a team. Think of how much more all of us can do if we work together in a positive way collectively and bring all the power of teamwork to bear moving forward. We're so much better off when we do that. 
And that is probably the most important lesson that I think any of us could learn from September 11th. Absolutely. Now go ahead and throw out some contact information. I know you have michaelhinkson.com as well, but give us some social media and contact information to where listeners can reach out to sure. you if they want to purchase the book. Well, if they want to purchase the book, the best thing for them to do is to go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any bookstore and get it. Um, it's the quickest way. Or they can go to uh, Amazon for Running with Roselle, but Running, but Thunderdog is available anywhere books are sold. We're available on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn um, at M, uh, M. Hingson on Facebook and same with Twitter and, and LinkedIn. We're there as well. So people can find us there. Um, as you said, www.michaelhingson.com. People can also go to uh, from Michael Hingson Facebook page to the Blinded by Fear Facebook page. So they can just look at look up Blinded by Fear on Facebook and they'll get to that fan page. I'm doing a fair amount of posts on that, trying to discuss fear and success and other things. And so people are, are welcome to go to the Blinded by Fear webpage. We'd love them to participate in discussions there, give us their thoughts on fear. And um, we'd love to meet people that way. Um, so the other, of course, is going to www.blindedbyfear.net where they can download the ebook and then schedule an introductory call if they wish. And as you said, www.michaelhingson.com. We are available for speaking um, opportunities, virtual or in-person. In-person right now isn't gonna happen in the next little while, but if people wanna hire a speaker uh, to speak virtually, glad to do it just as well as speaking in person. Um, got all the technology to do good virtual presentations and uh, would love to talk with anyone who's looking for a speaker. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Hinkson. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure and honored to do it and um, hope that we um, have, have helped to make a difference in some lives. Absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, remember to rate and review the show. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream. dream.